Welcome to Marginally Fanish, a show where we aim an intersectional lens at some of our favorite media and their fandoms. My name is Parinita Shetty and you're listening to the 11th episode of Marginally Fanish. In this episode, I talk to TG Shepherd, also known as Lisa, about the representation of women warriors in media and history. There are perceived gender roles and gender disparities in different styles of martial arts with some being considered too brutal for women. People's gender also impacts their experiences in the environment they're training to fight in. Comics have a long history of representing women warriors who have been aspirational role models for countless young people and adults. However, the overall representations of female fighters in media involve tired tropes rather than realistic, fully fleshed out characters. This reflects the erasure of women warriors in real world history, which overlooks how women from different parts of the world overcame social, cultural and legal barriers to fight. Fortunately, there are a growing number of representations of women warriors with different skills, bodies and abilities working together. Magic or advanced technology in science fiction and fantasy worlds limits the role gender plays among good fighters. Mainstream comics are becoming increasingly diverse and often act as people's first encounters with different lives. Fan fiction has tremendous transformative potential in questioning the norm and exploring alternate possibilities. Though even there, gender dynamics play a role in the kind of stories which are taken seriously. The internet and more diverse academic researchers play a huge role in bringing traditionally marginalized stories about women leaders and fighters to life. However, there needs to be more intersectional representations of fighters in science fiction and fantasy to include different ages, races, abilities, religions, sexual and gender identities. Find our conversation about all this and more in today's episode. Happy listening! I'm so happy to welcome T.G. Shepard, otherwise known as Lisa, to today's episode. T.G. Shepard is a Canadian writer and martial artist living on the West Coast. She has been training in martial arts since the age of 17, but was born wishing warrior was still a job description. Her first novel, As a God, is available to buy on Kindle, but she also publishes a blog on www.tgshepard.com, which I'll link to in the transcript as well. And it's called 30 Seconds of Wick, which breaks down fight scenes in movies 30 seconds at a time beginning with John Wick, hence the name. And she can be located on Twitter at TG Shepherd Wan, where she yells about comic books, fighting and dogs a lot. Amazing. The topic we're going to explore today is a little different from what I'm used to. We're going to be looking at how women warriors are portrayed in science fiction and fantasy. I'm a lifelong book nerd who has no experience with fighting. And as a pacifist, I don't think I ever want to experience fighting unless the specific circumstances involve punching fascists, in which case I could be convinced, maybe. Though I need to wear uh, boxing gloves or something because I need to preserve my hands for, you know, holding books and turning pages and maintain my book nerd cred. So uh, Lisa is one of the few people who is both bookish and loves to fight. So could you tell us about your own experiences with being a woman fighter, Lisa? Yeah, I started training when I was 17 in um, traditional martial arts, Taekwondo in particular. And um, gradually over the years, I started to branch out into other things. I branched out into Olympic sword fighting. 
where I took up saber fencing, which at the time women weren't allowed to compete in the Olympics in. And uh, that's since changed. It was considered kind of the uh, the more sort of brutal art and, you know, women wouldn't want to do it, but obviously we did. And then I took up archery and then gradually um, in my 20s, I went up taking up with a very street-based martial art based on uh, Bruce Lee's training methods called JKD. Mm. And um, the basic principle with JKD concepts is you need to do what, what works and then there are no rules. In the sense that I don't call my teacher by a, a formal title. We don't bow in and out of the mats. We don't have any sort of formal forms or anything. I call my teacher by his first name. You know, there's no real rank. Like, we don't wear or indicate rank at all. Yeah. And you fight who you can fight. You beat who you can beat. And the school that I'm in is very much uh, dedicated to understanding that you're, you're doing this to survive. If you're going to use this, you're doing it to survive a fight not to win a, a sporting match. But the reason I train where I train is that when I asked him what his first response to being attacked in the street was, he said, run away. <laughs> like I've trained in places that were super macho. Yeah. Where I, where I felt very concerned for my personal safety because I, if I acted less skilled than I was, I was going to get beaten up for being a weakling. If I acted more skilled than I was and actually wound up beating somebody, then they were going to ret- retaliate in a method that was, uh, you know, improper. But the, wow. the school that, I, yeah, the school that I'm in, I've never had any concerns for, for it. He treats everyone the same way. Uh, you're expected to live up to one standard and he doesn't put up with any kind of crap like that. Also, the school trends a bit older uh, because the arts that we learn are a little more, um, you need to be able to think about things more. Like I'm a stick fighter is my primary art. Mm. Um, we call it Kali. Uh, it's the Amer- westernized form of um, Filipino stick fighting. So Arnis or Escrima would be called uh, the traditional arts. The reason I like stick fighting is that it's an art where the harder you try to do something, the worse you're going to be at it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So have you had more experiences? I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later. It sparked my curiosity, I guess, where your gender has affected the environment, the fighting environment that you're in. Yeah, it's funny. I have to walk a very fine line um, with particularly new people in the gym. I'm the senior student. I've been with my instructor for about 20 years. And I'm the senior student, but there's there's no way to tell looking at me that I am. I, you know, I'm I'm not a particularly imposing individual. I'm a middle-aged, you know, white woman. So coming in, particularly with new guys, you have to be very careful around them because I've actually had a couple leave after I want to fight. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and I don't want to cost my instructor students. So, <laughs> right. it, it, yeah, you tend to have to be very careful of their egos. <laughs> wow, that's a problem. I mean, like now that obviously you're, you're saying it, it makes perfect sense. But I don't think it's something I would have thought of. Like that would have been a problem faced yeah. by women fighters. From your blog, I read a few of your blog posts and you write a lot about how much comics meant to you, not only like now they mean to you, but also growing up as a teenager, how much comics meant to you and your deep emotional relationship, especially with Mockingbird. And do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, well, I realized when I took up with my current instructor, and as he, he specializes in a lot of things, which includes stick fighting, is that I realized about then that I'd been trying to turn myself into Mockingbird most of my life <laughs> and hadn't really realized that, like, I took up science and biology because I wanted to be her, and I took up stick fighting because I wanted to be here. Now, it turns out I'm actually quite suited to stick fighting, so that's okay. It's one of, it's one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah, Mockingbird was one of the first characters I saw in any media where... I genuinely felt was an aspirational figure in the sense that that is somebody that I could actually aspire to be, mm-hmm. not simply to admire. Yeah. And one thing I loved about her is um, uh, she was always unapologetic about being the smartest person in the room or one of the smartest people in the room. She was unapologetic about it, but not arrogant. Like she wasn't like Tony Stark or something. She wasn't, oh, I'm the smartest person in the room all the time. She was just quietly, you know, doing her thing in the corner and, it's like, okay, one of the first times we meet her in her modern form of Mockingbird, because she existed in a couple different forms before that, is in a miniseries, a Hawkeye miniseries that was published in 1982. And towards the end of the miniseries, the bad guy pits Hawkeye and Mockingbird against each other. And even the bad guy says, well, she's going to win the fight. She's a much better fighter than you are. <laughs> and Hawkeye agrees, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, if this was a fair fight, she's going to kick my ass. And... Basically, she realizes, because she's smart, that the only person who has the chance to get them out of the whole situation is Hawkeye. So she throws a suicide play. She sacrifices herself so that he's the one who can get out. Because she realizes that that the particular combination of circumstances means that he's the one who can save them. So it's like even then she's his sort of partner. And and like I used the word macho earlier. One of the reasons why I... um, I love Hawkeye and Mockingbird as, as, as a, uh, a pairing is that um, Hawkeye is not a macho guy. He's a masculine guy. And the way I've always described the difference is that uh, macho guys are terrified that they aren't men and masculine guys know that they are. Hmm. Like a masculine guy knows he's a man. A macho guy is terrified that he's not. Yeah, so and, the insecurities, which is especially like the ones that you saw in real life. Yeah, real life. exactly. And then you see it in real life. I have uh, a bunch of stories about, you know, like teenage boys in particular. It's, it's You have to be very careful with their egos. But um, I'm sort of really well known in my gym for being something of like I get called a robot because I don't seem to feel pain. <laughs> and and I'm like, well, no, I just I'm not going to show pain to you guys because what would be the point, right? You know, like whereas when I'm fighting my instructor, I will show emotion because there's no um, critique in it. When he and I are fighting, right. he he has no critique of my emotional state. But if you show emotion in front of a lot of dudes when you're fighting, they attribute it to you being a woman. So I find, yeah, your sort of connection with comics really fascinating because for me, that's not something I really had when I was a kid. I've only discovered comics quite recently and fallen in love with them. But like I'd mentioned to you before that for the longest time, I was really intimidated by them because I didn't know where to start. Yeah. And And you got a hundred years of history. Exactly. And I (laughs) think that's a problem a lot of people face like it can act like the history itself like you said can act as the sort of barrier for new people to enter which is why I love the more diverse kind of stories that there are now I know like diversity is a word that's been appropriated by a lot of companies and by a lot of 
you know like just brands to sell their brands but like some of the comics that i've fallen in love with recently is i don't think i would have had i not like miss marvel squirrel girl oh yeah the lumberjanes you know i don't know that i would have picked up superman or batman i still have no like i don't want to i'm not really very interested in those stories no like i, I watched have... the film like spider-man and stuff yeah i i i have no real like i don't really have much of a connection to the straight white male characters um except for a few like hawkeye like captain like steve rogers that the depth of the comics was like again in mockingbird was the first time i saw a character that was who was flawed and human but incredibly aspirational trauma came later in her history but when she started she was a hero because she chose it she wasn't a hero because she was sexually assaulted or a hero because her parents abandoned her or a hero. She was a hero because she was like, she looked at the world and went, no, I want to be that. And that was something that women just weren't allowed. And that's one of the reasons why the character resonated with me because it was the choice to be, I'm going to turn myself into somebody who can stand next to a God on a battlefield and not be a liability. It's a one, it was a wonderful thing. And it was like, for me, I identified more with, in comics, with, the people of color with T'Challa, with Storm, with, you know, Falcon, with Luke Cage. And those were some of the first and most positive experiences I, ever, I had with black characters as well. So yeah. for me, comic books was this window into a diversity and a richness of the universe that I didn't see in my everyday life. But also it gave me the chance to go, hey, look, there is someone who looks like you, who you could actually be. And she's a hero. And that was one of the first times that I was faced with the idea that, you know, maybe you can be a hero. Maybe there's more or maybe the, your path is not to be a mother and a housewife. And because I was born in the 70s. So it's like there was gender roles were still very specific even then in the middle of the sexual revolution. You know, and it's like one thing I always loved about Mockingbird is that her stats, like they have these lists of stats for all the characters are ridiculous. Like in Marvel, she's five foot nine and 130 pounds. No, she's not. <laughs> she, would, she would be the size of a stick, but she was never drawn that way. Yeah. She was always drawn as a big, strong, substantial woman, very sexual, very sexy. Very, but like not a stick or reed thin. She looked like someone who could stand and trade with Captain America. Right. No, so the role that comics played for you, for me, it was children's books in general and Harry Potter specifically when I yes. was growing up. And I always saw myself in these bookish fictional girls like Hermione, Anne of Green Gables, Joe March, you know, all white Western women. So yes, like that I didn't see, but I still connected with them deeply, though, of course, I do accept Hermione is canonically black now. But as someone who wasn't really surrounded by people who seemed to love books as much as I did, those were the characters that I I most connected with but then now like especially in comics where the diversity isn't like, like you don't have to read yourself into it you know like you can yeah at least with the yeah. more diverse ones now like squirrel girl I know she's white but you know she's not stick thin she's not and she's fun and she's irreverent and you know she yeah like, she looks like me not in terms of the race but in terms of the body of course like, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a complete wimp I would not she's really <laughs> I'm not I, like her. Well, I also, I also identify with those characters. Like, I, I'm a reader. I read, like, I read constantly. It's one of the reasons why I got into comic books, because I was running out of things to read. Like, my mother would dump me at the library for six hours, you know? It's like, yeah. like I, I read constantly. So I identified with the bookish girls, too, with the smart ones, which is, again, one of the reasons why Mockingbird appealed to me, because she's brilliant. She's a genius. 
and, and she's also a fighter. And that aspect is not something that I ever saw much because um, when you get into the into the fighting women thing, you get into the um, you get into these very binary discussions, and it's it's such a very complex and subtle thing. You get into the binary discussions of male versus female traits and heteronormative versus you know queer and and all in all. And it's like and I could never really find a place to stand. Yeah. On any of those, because they're very complex. And when I was young, I didn't have the ability to articulate that complexity. Yeah. So you've mentioned that apart from writing your own original fiction, you also write a bunch of fanfic and read a bunch of fanfic enough to se- fill several books. Your ideas. Yes. <laughs> and I don't read much fanfic now, though I'd love some recommendations. But do you think fanfic can also play a role then in questioning the norm, like these normativities, either your own fic or even the ones that you read? Oh, deeply. Like one of the reasons why I wrote started to write the Mockingbird. So I'm on a I'm on the big platform AO3 archive mm-hmm. of our own as Ms. Mockingbird. And my entire uh, work, almost my entire work there is actually my entire work there is Avengers centric, and it's it's based on the idea of I, I inserted Mockingbird into the MCU at a specific character. But it's a it's a mix. Anyway, it's whatever. I I like them. Some of them are really good. As I've said, one of my great uh, desires is to be accused of plagiarizing my own fanfic someday. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the reasons why I love fanfic and why I got into it and why I started to read it considerably more, like about five, six years ago was when I started to really get into it, when it was more like reliably available on a couple different sites, mm-hmm. is that it is the, it is transformative fandom at its best. It is taking that which exists as a base and not rejecting it, saying, okay, this has value, this has power as a modern myth, as something that's important in society. And going, but where are the cracks? Like, what is missing? So fanfic questions normality by saying, well, yeah, here's all the things that you can read into that. And and we only got one path. But we need to see where all these other paths are. Like, um, obviously, a lot of uh, fanfic started from, from Star Trek. And it started okay. from uh, the idea of uh, people making queer relationships among Star Trek characters, in particular mm-hmm. Spock and Kirk like the original series. And it's always been overwhelmingly queer and overwhelmingly female. And that's not obviously true about everything. And it's changed a lot now. But it's one of the reasons why I feel that it has been, and I use this word deliberately, despised, because it was very queer and very female. And that was not within the sort of heteronormative white male sexuality, white male uh, hegemony of culture that was allowed to exist. No, absolutely. And it's not just then, it's even now. Like, I think fanfic has achieved more of a mainstream following, but it's just relatively, like, only if you compare it to how it used to be. Like, I used to read a lot of fanfic when I was a teenager, but now I think more people know it, but there is still this, you know, sort of suspicion of what fanfic actually is like it's not all sex you know I mean there is no. and that's also great like that's also a way of you know expressing your your stories and whatever and your interests but it's not just that like for example me I'm not even in my regular reading I'm not really a person who reads a lot of romance and relationshipy things like that's not what you know like that's not my kind of reading so if I started reading fanfic, I know that there is a lot for me out there that doesn't deal with ships and that doesn't, you know, deal with slang. Yeah. So there is, and I think like, yeah, I think we've talked about this in a previous podcast episode, you know, sort of the majority of fanfic writers are women and that does play a role in how it is seen by everybody else. Yeah. As the 
the joke is that when when a woman writes in homage to a character, it's called fanfic, and when a man writes it, it's called pastiche or you know like like <laughs> yeah. homage or it's given yeah. some it's given some fancy title like oh I wrote this you know response to Shakespeare. You wrote Shakespeare fanfic, dude. Yeah, absolutely. You know? but also like the thing is that it's like that does have an effect on the money that people make as well. Like men would be much more like Sherlock, the BBC adaptation. That's fanfic. Like that's not but yeah, of course he got totally. a lot of money and he got a lot of like you know a, a huge platform whereas a woman would be like oh you're just writing even if the woman's fanfic would have been much better than what like I love BBC Sherlock but it's not me too oh no it's fanfic but it's like like the, the new She-Ra cartoon which is beautiful yeah. it's it's about love and joy and and friendship and the power of courage and honor and loyalty but it's been called fanfic because there's queer relationships in it i'm like it doesn't meet it's not fanfic it's an adaptation yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah if a oh, dude did it you'd call it an adaptation yeah absolutely. it's such a great fanfic is despised for all the wrong reasons so a lot of fanfic is terrible there's millions and millions of words of fanfic out there and a lot of it is just awful and sure. a lot of it is problematic as hell Hmm. like there's a lot of consent issues and there's a lot of stuff but then you get some of it is some of the most beautiful writing I've ever read in my entire life some of it is is absolutely brilliant and it's an avenue for those who have felt silenced to speak their truth yeah absolutely and um, just turning back to then representations of female fighters in canon, especially in science fiction and fantasy media, there are a lot of tropes and stereotypes which are overrepresented, whether it came to heroes or villains. Are there any specifically that you're really tired of? Yeah, um, there's, uh, as I say, there's this holy trinity of tropes for female fighters, which is the, the cold ice maiden, um, often usually represented as being kind of like the Brienne of Tarth. Um, mm. trope although she is much less of a trope than many others there's the the willowy uh you know femme fatale who kills by stealth you know and that's sort of the what the black widow character can yeah. be uh, and I'm, I'm only just using these as references i'm not saying they specifically are and then there's the man but without uh male genitalia character mm. and like those seem to be the three that you get all the time you don't get a lot of fully realized women that I would recognize as being actual like I've fought that person or I know that person like a lot of my female friends are women warriors and like one of the issues I have with the Wonder Woman the portrayal of Wonder Woman is they always talk about oh she's a warrior for love and I'm like that's great and I'm really glad that exists but that's not a very realistic archetype for somebody who has taken up warrior as a job description yeah you can be a good person, you can be a moral person, you can be a kind person, you can be all of those things. But that sort of, I'm now going to stop in the middle of a fight and, and coo over a baby thing mm, is yeah. is a way for a dude writer to make a character who is very strong more palatable to weak men. Yeah, because this is something that we'd spoken about when we were planning our episode about Wonder Woman and like I was telling you I really liked Wonder Woman the movie because for me it was the first time that I'd seen something like yes. that that you know where a woman like especially the uh, scenes on the island like in the beginning of the movie yeah where the Amazons a, are great yeah yeah the Amazons like that was my you know that made me like cry just because it me too yeah, Me just too. because of the way that it centered her and women in the story. But then, like you were saying, that apart from the director, it's 
like mostly male dominated the production. almost the entire creative team were men the writer was a man the producers were men a lot of that movie is extremely male gazy in the sense that it's it again centers the the man's perspective of what the amazons are and it's as i said it makes her very non-threatening to dudes I love that Wonder Woman exists because I love that women got that experience because I know so many women who came out of that feeling like empowered for the first time by a movie. And that's freaking awesome. I love that. I did not see myself as a fighting woman anywhere in that movie except on Themyscira. That's where I saw myself. And then once they left the island, I just saw someone who was being led around by the nose by guys. Wonder Woman did it first. Black Panther did it right. Yeah. Because yeah. the women the women in Black Panther were fully realized human beings who were warriors in very different ways. But oh, there was they were so brilliant. I love yeah. them. Yeah. Like you got Okoyo who's the, the Okoyo who's the, the like unequivocally this person who's in charge who's a general. You got Shuri who's the sort of, you know, devil may care spunky one. You got, you know, the spy character. You've got the, the the queen mother. You've got all these really diverse female characters who are all treated as specific individuals with specific needs and wants and desires and personality traits that included being warriors, but were not about being warriors. So in one of the podcast episodes that we listened to, the Imaginary Worlds Heroines one, they spoke about another trope that they've come across is essentially where the woman warrior, this sort of strong female fighter she's the exception so she's yeah like you know counter to the norm where she has like she's like not like the other girls and she's the only woman in like a yeah. very male sort of thing and last weekend after our meeting I watched Rogue One and I loved Rogue One the movie itself just because to me as someone who's discovered Star Wars as an adult quite recently or not discovered I guess I knew about it you can't be on the internet without <laughs> knowing Star Wars like I knew everything I knew all the spoilers everything but like I went back to it just because I thought it's such a huge part of fandom that you know I should be aware of the story and everything and I watched the first six like the original uh, and then the Mm -hmm. other three and but Rogue One is the first time I think I got really and properly invested in the story and bawled at the end like the way that it impacted me emotionally and the way that I cared about the characters yeah I, I, I really liked the movie but Jin, who is the woman character in like the female fighter, I, I don't know what her job was. Was she a pilot? I, I don't remember. My memory is terrible. Yeah, it's not really other than someone's daughter. Her existence in the movie is because she's someone's daughter. So oh, that's again, right. Yeah. yeah, she exists in the movie as a reflection of a man. And also just, I feel like in terms of personality as well, that Everyone else there, all the men seem to have other things going on and seem to be more fleshed out, whereas she was more like she's only there to be this badass fighter. And then what? Like there were no other women. I think there was one woman in a pilot, like yeah. just because yeah, of her voice. There, there are a couple of women. There's some women in the council scene and someone joked that like I think we just saw more black women in Star Wars than we've ever seen in any other movie and they were all in the <laughs> background of that scene. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, it was true. Like until Rogue until um uh, Last Jedi, it was like the most diverse movie. I like it too. Like I walked out of that movie going that was a proper Star Wars film because it was very much of a, a the feel of a of a space western. 
but yeah, it's like she's the exception. That that's one of the other tropes that that gets mixed in with all the others is is that the woman warrior is a freak, an exception. She's not like anybody else. She's the lone figure. It's like someone joked that you know it was like, well, what do we have in the Avengers? You know, we got the, the archer and the soldier and the scientist and the you know the god and the girl one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Essentially. Just you saying that, like that that's what makes me think of something like Shira, for example, where it's not just one fighter. Like Shira is the best fighter, I think, amongst all of them. But when they're fighting, it's usually they're much better as a team. Or like a team of the girls or, you know, like, like Bo. And it's in a it's done in a way where they are leaning on each other and where sort of the group is centered over the individual and because it's a women like most of the characters are women it almost seems to be pushing back against that trope a little bit yeah there's a diversity not simply in in the races and the body types and the uh sexualities but also in the way that each one of them uh, contributes to the Mm. to the revolution um one of the lines is not really spoilers but at one point she she, someone asked she-ra for like emotional advice or adora for emotional advice her response is well i'm really more of the punch out your feelings type (laughs) yeah and i'm like that i that i that i identify with (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely you're so right that there's room for all these different kinds of characters and all these different kinds of fighters as well which men are allowed the yeah. male characters are allowed to have the the rogue character, the sneaky character, the scientist character, the smart character, the you know the tank character, the the kind of calm, cool leader. But the women get the one. There's that one. Okay, so it's like okay, she's either this one or she's this one or there's this one. We can't possibly have more than one of those. Yeah, so <laughs> that's why what I really love, I think, is that like it's the default like being a woman in that world is the default because i think most of the people that we see are women yeah like there's oh, yeah. one non-binary character and there are i think a handful oh. of men like yeah that. there's and, like bow and seahawk oh yeah and, and, so, uh, and some secondary characters Hordak, and Hordak, I guess. yeah yeah, yeah. It's, otherwise it's and so it's not only like the queerness is the default but it's also like just being female is the default which yeah just brings up so many different ways of storytelling oh both dads both dads oh yeah both dads as well yeah yeah i I always thought it was interesting i thought it was really interesting that the vast majority of the online outrage about that show was centered on the fact that the female characters now all looked like actual living beings as opposed to dolls but nobody seemed to be really freaked out that boat that they'd made Bo black oh I, I thought I was don't have any experience with the original Shira, so I didn't know he was. Yeah, the original black. Shira, he's a white guy. Yeah, and in the original Shira, every single character, all the women characters look exactly the same. Right. They just have like different color schemes and like different gimmicks because they're not designed as humans; they're designed as toys yeah. to sell toys to girls, right? And yeah. so it's like there's this huge outrage. There's still grown adult men angry at a children's cartoon because they don't feel that the female characters are sufficiently sexual. Yeah, and even though they're what, I don't even like 14, 13, like I don't, they're, they're teenagers, all of them, I think. Yeah, teenagers, or some of them are seeming like they're a bit older, but like barely legal if yeah. they are. <laughs> like I know the original Shira for a lot of people, like, you know, you were saying with Wonder Woman that if you, maybe it wasn't perfect, but for a lot of people, that was their first sort yeah. of feeling of being empowered. And I know that the original Shira was that for a lot of kids and adult women even at that time but now I'm so glad that 
this Shira is so much more diverse yes. and so much more explicitly like feminist and queer than I think the original yeah. Shira could be possibly at, given the industry and you know the world at that time. Swiftwind is basically an angry socialist. <laughs> You're right. I love yeah. it. He basically is just yelling, yelling about, you know, horse rights. And, yeah, yeah. You know, for, oh. and I'm like, and I love that. I'm like, as soon as he got to speak, he was a complete jerk. <laughs> and I'm like, I love it. Like, I love oh, the fact you made, you made the horse an angry socialist, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So based on popular SFF out there, or even in your favorite stories, what do you think makes for a really bad fight scene? Either because I know you've analyzed a lot of comics and movies or, you know, TV shows and novels. Or what makes for a good fight scene even, like, based on what you've seen? It's funny. I actually do um, panels at conventions about this. I started oh. a panel at our local convention called How to Write a Fight Scene if You Don't Know How to Fight. Amazing. And, yeah. One of the things that I feel like the worst kinds of fight scenes are the ones where the author is obsessed with letting you know how much they know about fighting. <laughs> It's you, but the problem also is that is usually someone who doesn't actually know how to fight, but they've you know watched a movie or they've watched an online video or they've read like a, a book or something or they've taken like oh I took strip mall karate 15 years ago so I know how to punt. Like any fight scene where I'm confused about the physics in the room, like physically how could you possibly have done that thing that you just described? Is, is like the kind of fight scene I'm talking about. Because like at that point, I'm no longer reading a book. I'm getting out a piece of paper and trying to chart where everybody is in the room. Like, okay, <laughs> how could you possibly have done that? <laughs> and what I don't mean, I don't mean confusing. Because fights are often extremely confusing. Yeah. They're all, like that, a, a proper fight is very quick, is very chaotic. Luck factors into it a lot more than people like to think. Like, I've been in the middle of fighting in my gym, in the safest environment you can possibly think, and my foot slips and I lose the fight. Yeah. Because there's sweat on the ground. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. You wouldn't think about these things unless, yeah. of course, you knew you were a fighter yourself. Yeah. The, and, and for me, a good fight scene not only – see, a good fight scene ha- can have multiple different points. And as I've joked in movies, uh, never let reality get in the way of a good fight scene because there's times <laughs> when you're just like – this is ridiculous, but whatever. It looks beautiful. Uh, so leave it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like most, most superhero fights are like, this is ludicrous, but it looks beautiful. Um, which is why the ones that are extremely centered in reality impact people so much because of um, the recognition that, oh, this would work in real life. You could actually have these powers and make them work in real life and without having to do like, you know, six foot kick flips. Right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, a fight scene should either move forward character move forward plot or both or be extremely beautiful or have a specific impact on a specific point of that character's needs. And so I like fight scenes that are very visceral where you can smell and taste because when I fight, I'm, I'm tasting sweat. I'm occasionally tasting blood. I know what it feels like when you scrape a piece of fabric across somebody's face. I know what it feels like to have that scraped across my face. I know what it feels like to have your have a deep cut and not know until the fight is over. I do a wrestling art in jiu-jitsu and you wear a white gi in that or I you can wear colored gis but I often wear a white gi and I've looked down at myself after a fight and literally the front of that gi is red because I've cut my lip and not realized it. And so it's then, like, uh, yeah. would it be like, you know, in some fight scenes you see that even when a person is 
what the audience would think would be grievously injured but she yeah. continues doing that would that be realistic then just because well, of, i guess the adrenaline or whatever okay yeah humans are a lot harder to kill than people think they're a lot <laughs> easier to injure and a lot harder to kill so john wick has been is dead like halfway through the first fight scene in the first movie like john wick is dead so but john wick's not human he's a superhero or so I've, I've actually seen it i can't get into it here because it's a long theory but someone's theory is that the entire john wick universe is based on the fairy universe oh. that they're all fae and oh. it's, it's like it's a it's a beautiful tongue-in-cheek breakdown of why certain things never seem to hurt them <laughs> and oh, it's like, it's so when you've got superheroes fighting, it's fine. I'm going to accept that you can you can suck up that damage because you're a superhero, whatever. John Wick is not uh, an action series of action movies. This is a, it's a series of horror movies where John Wick is the unstoppable killer, but he just happens to be the guy you're rooting for. <laughs> because they kill yeah. his dog. Yeah. That's the movie, right? I yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the John Wick movies are horror movies where the unstoppable bad guy is the guy you're rooting for. Like you're, you're rooting for Jason. You're rooting for Mike Myers. I mean, I would root for yeah. anybody who's defending the... the yes, it's a know, brilliant dog. conceit. Yeah. It's a brilliant conceit, because the instant they kill his dog, anything he does to them is now okay. Yeah. As soon as they kill his dog, he is now free range to do anything he likes to any of these people. That's true. Right? <laughs> so it's like, so superhero movies are different. Like, it's fine. I can accept the amount of damage, although I do like the fact that they have always shown that every single one of them, in particular the MCU... No, the Marvel movies um, get progressively more tired and more sloppy as battles go on. Yeah. Like, by the end of the first battle in the Avengers, Captain America is wrecked. Yeah. <laughs> like, he can barely stand. <laughs> and he's That's still, true. but he's, you know, he's getting up and fighting. Thor is wrecked. You know, like, these people are not well by the end of that first movie. <laughs> yeah, you would imagine this. Like, yeah. Uh, even yeah. for them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, just to quickly go back to uh, just an intersection of really great fighting and, and something that's very particularly cinematic is there's a fight in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I think season four or season five, where Quake faces off against the big bad guy, which was played by Brett Dalton, where he turns into a he turns into like um, an alien villain. And there's a fight between the two of them that utilizes their specific superpowers as they fight. That is one of the best fights I've ever seen. Because she has she has shockwave abilities, so she's using the shockwaves to dodge punches. But it's one of the best fights I've ever seen that utilizes the intersection between superpowers in real life and and actual fighting. Because both of those actors and their stunt doubles are very good. Like, they've put in the work. Yeah. They're very good fighters, and they do very good work. But it was one of the best choreographed fight scenes I've ever seen. Same way with my in my blog, I have a description of the Daredevil uh, season three episode, which is an intersection of superpowers and physical fighting. That it's the one between him and Bullseye in the office, where they actually paid attention to what his superpowers were and how it would be affected by his environment. Daredevil is he's blind, right? He's blind, but he has super senses. Okay, right. So smell, touch, taste, balance, which is important. Right. And so it's an interesting thing. I'm not gonna. I want people to read the the read the blog post. It's only 30 seconds a week blog, but it's like there's an interesting intersection for when you're fighting in a specific environment and these are your specific skill sets. This is what might happen, and I have nothing but respect for that because it shows a deep honest and abiding love and respect for the for the medium but also for the character 
Right. And that's to me a great fight scene, particularly in a visual medium, is to show respect for the abilities of the characters. And it's like um, Atomic Blonde, just to another, just to give another visual reference. So Atomic Blonde was the Charlize Theron movie um, set in the 60s, I believe, or 70s um, in Berlin, maybe 80s. Well, anyway, set it's set in the past in Berlin, and she's like the super spy. And there's a absolutely brilliantly brutal five, ten minute long fight at the end where she's just going up and down stairs and hurting this non-combatant in front of her. And she's fighting multiple guys and they're using their environment and all that. And it was choreographed by the guys, uh, by Sam Hargrave and his brother, who were Captain America's stunt doubles. Oh. I avoid a lot of behind the scenes talk about fight scenes until I've actually seen the seen it. But one of the things they talked about was they wanted to choreograph her as not only becoming progressively more tired and beaten up, but having to hit a guy three times for every one punch that he threw. And like, that's not like, I look at that and went, okay, that's someone who understands. Like, I'm a big, strong woman. I am not physically as strong as a dude my size. Hmm. I have skill behind me and I have, I have intelligence and skill and I am very strong. So I'm probably stronger than most guys my size because I've worked at it. Most people don't. Right. But they said like, yeah, we wanted to show that she had to, she had to hit three or four times to have the same impact that one hit that these guys, these big, very big men would have. And I'm like, that's realistic. That's actually respectful of the character. That's respectful of the, environment it's intelligent it means she has to fight smart strong guest is not important stronger is not important strong enough is what Mm. matters no and that's such a good point because like for example you like you said that perhaps you would be able to defeat a person like a guy who's not trained who's not fighting who's the same size as you but somebody who has the same amount of training at that point, it is about, like, just, I guess, I don't want to say innate strength. I don't know if that's true or not. But just, yeah, male strength versus. Well, yeah, there's, there's a line in Italian sword fighting, which is um, never underestimate the strength or malice of your opponent. Because in a fight, it is the stronger or more malicious fighter who will win. Oh, no. <laughs> I may not be laughing. the, yeah. I may not be the strongest person in the room, but I guarantee you I'll beat you on malice, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) So until you highlighted this theme of women warriors, I hadn't really consciously even thought about it. Now that I think back on it, I'm enjoying a lot of media that does have women fighters, but it's not something I thought about while reading or watching these stories. But while planning our episode, then I started thinking about the different these different kinds of fighters in my favorite SFF and how the fighting scene differs based on either like either the physical skill of the person or the magical prowess or just the technological access that, you know, the woman has. Yeah. And this includes women fighters of different bodies and abilities as well. Yeah. So some of my favorite women fighters in comics and graphic novels have been Miss Marvel and Squirrel Girl. And I don't know if you're familiar with The Dragon Prince at all. It's a Netflix um, TV show. It's by the same people who made Avatar The Last Airbender, which again, even in that there's a different kind of fighting, so it's something called bending. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I, I am familiar with Avatar Dragon Prince. I haven't watched, but I'm familiar with a lot of the Avatar stuff because it is brought up as being 
a very diverse and interesting method of doing combat in animation. Yeah, and, and I do respect gender, it. Yeah, yeah, and their gender doesn't seem to play any role. No, what you're good at or what you're yeah bad but that's, at. That's that's force multiplication. Magic is a form of force multiplication in the same way that a gun or a sword or a stick or an arrow is. Is that when you take the pure, the purest level of base physical strength out of something by allowing a character to have the ability to multiply their force, you remove the gender issue or you, you limit the gender issue. Like a, a lot of what I do, the way that we train, because my school, as I said, is very street, is very street oriented, is very uh, based on, on reality. After six months, after you have mastered the basics, you are no longer training to fight random drunk jerk on the street. You're now training to fight someone who knows how to fight. Mm. Because you're training to be able to be smarter and use force multiplication and like, like I said, the steps are always run away. If you can't run away, pick up a weapon. If you can't pick up a weapon, hit first, hit hard, and then run away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. so it's like, yeah. So magic in all of these things is 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 often force multiplication. It's one of the reasons why the I think that a lot of, in, no matter what the gender is, a lot of magic users are often portrayed as being scrawny or small or weedy because they need that force multiplication. And in a non in a non ballistic society where you don't have guns, that's magic. Do you have any, um, like apart from Mockingbird, any other favorite female fighters that you've come across recently? Uh, well, I mean, not recently, but obviously I do love Xena very much. That's oh, a, yeah. a favorite of yeah. mine. In in media, I love I love the way Peggy Carter has always been portrayed. Because hmm. she's always portrayed as both being very physical and very intelligent about it. Um, I I loved the way that Ms. that Captain Marvel was portrayed in mm. the movie. Um, yeah, I really love the fact you know, spoilers, the fact that she basically drives off an alien fleet by flexing at them. <laughs> because that was smart. She demonstrated, I am very powerful. Are you going to come at me? Okay, good. We're fine. I'm not going to come after you. You know? <laughs> yeah. it, was a de- it was a demonstration of, I, can, I have this power. Do you want me to use it? Because if you do, I'm not going to stop. Okay, good, fine. The Bernard Cornwall Sharps series had um, the problem with the characters that she's she's very much the the exception girl, uh, but they mm. they portrayed uh, the Spanish resistance during the Peninsular War as having a lot of women, and having a lot of women who rode to battle with swords and guns and fought and were great shots and stuff like that. So there's a female character there. Uh, she she does get fridged. Spoiler alert for a series that's mm. been out for forty years, thirty years, yeah. <laughs> you know. In fiction, Lois McMaster Bujold writes a lot of great characters and a lot of great women warriors uh, of different kinds. Like, not necessarily women who can fight, but women who understand what they can do to stop a fight or help. Mm. And it's like, warrior as a mindset is obviously ungendered. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to fight. You can be a warrior and have no fighting skills. You know, because you never got trained with them because, you know, like women have always fought. As I said, like I uh, linked you to the Cameron Hurley text, we have always fought. Women have always fought, but it's always been the struggle to even get the training to be able to effectively do that at all. Because we were outlawed and excommunicated and executed and imprisoned and tortured and we had to go underground and we had to pretend to be men and we had, we couldn't even get the training. Like legally, women weren't allowed to even touch weapons in many societies. And that has such an impact, right, on the sort of stories that we're even telling now that if that history 
even though it exists, but it's completely been erased. Well, not completely. I know a lot of people do know about this history, but in terms of mainstream imaginations, the, yeah. the history of women fighters isn't really very well known, which is why you get something like all these tropes and stereotypes about, and the fact that you have to say woman warrior and like, you know, you can't yeah. just say warrior and imagine a woman. As yeah, much as you would imagine. It's it's like the recent discovery, like the the recent final proof that those people buried with warrior and general grave goods and Viking graves were women. Well, the chronicles of the time always said that those were women, but the male historians who wrote about them were like, oh, it's an allegory. <laughs> you know, they can't yeah. possibly have had women fighters. <laughs> yeah. And as well as like, I think in one of the things that one of the Breaking the Glass Slipper episodes, they spoke about, well, the history of female pirates as fighters as well. And uh, like samurai fighter in Japan, which there were some women there as well. But when we talk about this, or even when we represent it in media, like, you know, cartoons or whatever, you don't really represent women as fighting or if you do they would be very much like the norm or the exception to the norm yes and and usually the noble women um it would be the noble women which would be in many cases a little bit more historically accurate because in many cases it would be the noble women who would have the social political and financial cred to be able to demand to do this unorthodox thing yeah you wouldn't train women to fight like we get into this whole problem with the gender binary and all that and, and what people's roles in societies are, which was that, you know, women were supposed to bleed in childbed and men bled on the battlefield is the line yeah. that a lot of, you know, men's rights guys like that. I'm like, well, that's a base, that's again, reducing women down to biological determinism. That's saying, well, you have one purpose and you're allowed to do anything else. So what if I don't want children, you know, yeah. during the modern society, which is more common, but if I can't have children, what if my children die? Like, Boudicca, you know, being the great example of she was not allowed to be a mythic warrior figure until her children were dead. Yeah. No, it's your only purpose is you're either a mother and, and of course, in the end, she gets punished by dying. And yeah, that, like women in fictional history, women warriors in fictional history had two paths. You could uh, eventually give up everything, give up your abilities to marry a dude. And become a mother like you're supposed to, quote unquote, or you could be punished for it like Joan of Arc. In a lot of Western Christian allegory was that those women, you could take up arms, but only if you then became like a priestess afterwards or became a mother or died. Yeah, well, you, suitably yeah. punished for, like you yeah. could do it for God and then you could go away. But even die. then, even then you had to be sacrificed at the end. You couldn't actually continue with agency. You were not allowed to have agency. You could do a, this specific thing for a specific reason, but as long as your agency to continue to be somebody who was not what society wanted to be was relinquished or you were punished for not for not relinquishing it. You could, they were really the only paths that you could have. So I know a couple of the people on the Breaking the Glass uh, Slipper episode, as well as the text that the uh, We Have Always Fought article said that this history isn't well known. So we feel a little bit not as well educated about this. Like, for yes. example, in Indian history, we do have Rani Lakshmibai, who yeah. was uh, one of the people who was the first sort of resistance fighters in the revolt against the British Empire way back in 1857 in India. And of course, she like it was all defeated because then, you know, there was another 150 years of that, but uh, oh, 100 years of that. But that she is very much a part of our history. And we have some other women sort of like 
tales and things but mm-hmm. it's still like they are the exception like they are glorified because they're so rare there's such few of them that i mean it's, it's we're lucky that even those few exist so we have that capacity to imagine them but yeah it's not that oh yeah they could do it just as well as men could have we get the problem with if it's commonplace people don't write about it because it's this is this is society this is the way it's always been so why would we mention this and those coming in from the outside either don't see it or deliberately like erase it because oh that's weird you know women don't fight so let's just pretend that we don't see those women in armor over there or it's the like it's the extreme outliers uh, that you see like oh there's this woman who did this this woman did this but it's always like oh yeah but she was the queen and then she died at the end or she she defended the castle because her husband wasn't there but like never really acknowledging that yeah. that that they were doing the same role that a man would do but they were doing it for like motherly reasons or whatever it's actually funny the um, uh, Rani Lakshmi is that the name yeah. of the she Rani shows Lakshmi up Bay. she shows up as a character in the Civilization video game you can recruit her as a general yeah I I thought I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's and like something I know I told you uh, while we were prepping for this is rejected princesses. The blog, yes, great book. Has, yeah, yeah, it's like it's also like available online a lot of his stories. But the book rejected princesses as well as tough mothers is just fantastic because first of all it has rather than just a wet, even though he's like a straight white dude living in the U.S. He takes a more international view so he's yes. trying to sort of you know include more voices and histories in his books so it is more international as well and it's all centered on women and it's not just like you were saying earlier different it different kinds of fighting so there are some who are very you know go go out into the battlefield but then there were others because of historical social whatever political circumstance they have to be strategists rather than you know like yeah. actual physical warriors which was to, also really important yeah you had to wield the power that you were allowed to wield mm. um melisandra of jerusalem one of the queens jerusalem who was queen in her own right who was her father's heir had to marry a warrior because she was legally not allowed to lead men into battle even if she had the ability but she is acknowledged in all of history as being this incredibly powerful female queen who defended jerusalem and you know defended her her lover and many and her sisters and everything and probably killed multiple people by her own hand but it's like no one like no one's ever heard of her it's a good thing now that there are more because i guess just because of the internet as well so that's played a huge role to be able to have those voices that were silenced earlier for like a lot of different reasons now there is more room for these voices to not only say these things that were erased in history but also there's an audience that listens to and then shares these stories and you know yeah. like makes that a part of like the stories that everyone has access to and the people doing the research into the history have changed it's not all just straight white dudes mm-hmm. right so if i was going to go back to school and take up military history i would not be looking at the history of straight white dudes in battle i'd be looking for the outliers because i'm interested in that i'm not interested in talking about straight white dude in battle i'm interested in looking well were there women like was this a thing like and were how much of it was class you know how much the women women warriors got to be that way because they had the the financial social status to be able to be an outlier to be a freak you know whereas and and how much of it is simply the fact that you just didn't talk about the l- everyday lives of people, so you didn't talk about the ones who were there. Like Kara Cooney, who is an Egyptologist, just wrote a great book called When Women Ruled the World. It's about female pharaohs who were like leaders, and um, most of them weren't 
ever sort of qualified to lead men into battle, so they had to wield they had to wield military power at a distance at a remove. But they were genuine rulers, and that's a kind of kind of war. Is yeah. to rule a nation like Egypt is a kind of warfare. I no, I remember there was one female pharaoh. I don't remember who the name exactly. It's a, it's a story I came across in the museum exhibit. And I loved it so much. that is, I mean, not the what happened, but essentially, like I researched and linked it in the transcript. But essentially what happened was like she was this excellent ruler. She was this great pharaoh. But then the person who came after her hated that she was this powerful, popular ruler. So he uh, and hated that she was a woman as well so went and erased her out of all the tablets and all the art and all Hatshepsut oh yes yeah Hatshepsut and and here's the interesting thing is that may not actually be fully true oh really yeah Kara Cooney's done an entire book just about Hatshepsut and she's done one about all of the there were five or six very prominent female pharaohs that we don't know about she was only one of them Mm. And there's some evidence that maybe he wasn't the one who did that. Oh, okay. that it might have been a it might have been a later pharaoh, or mm. it might have been like here's like in even in Egyptian history there's the the pharaoh Akhenaten who was the heretic, the one who um, took them from the polytheistic deities to a monotheistic deity, yeah, a sun god, yeah. and then all of a sudden and he was the one who was married to Nef to Nefertiti, like you know famously the most beautiful woman who ever lived, and then suddenly Nefertiti disappears from the records. But all of a sudden, as she disappears from the records, this male, quote unquote, co-king shows up. Hmm. And there's a lot of evidence now that that was actually Nefertiti renamed because Akhenaten was losing his ability to rule and they needed continuance, somebody who could continue the administration of the empire and rebuild the temple system back up. But they didn't just want to overthrow the dynasty. Hmm. So it's like, so, yeah, it's really interesting, really interesting um, new history that's no, being seen. That, yeah, that's exactly what I love that even if like, you know, how, how much I were true or not, it was or whatever new details will come that you can't erase this out of history that even now the stories that we don't yet know about and some obviously there'll be countless that have completely been lost to history just because yes we don't have any documentation but because of the kind of researchers that there are now and the kind of stories that they're looking for and are interested in you do have these stories that were erased coming back to light that and uh, even the debates and the nuances and the complexities that are being explored and you know them fighting against each other because that's what researchers do best but yeah I love that and like another thing was in religion as well like I think religious history they're doing a lot of that as well like where we have a very specific idea of what happened in religion I know more because of the podcast that we listened to which was looking at Christianity and the role that women played in early Christian history like not in the bible but as the scholars and yeah, the keepers yeah. of knowledge, yeah. As artists and, you know, nuns and whatever, yes. whose stories have been completely erased as well. But they were in the patriarchal society of the time. They were still finding a way to maybe not just get married and, you know, have children and die. Yeah, and, and in many cases, that was the only other option was you went and you went into holy orders. And, yeah. and that was the only way you could get an education in many cases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like uh, what somebody on the podcast called his alternate patriarchies. Yes. Which she essentially said that it gives her hope that, you know, these ideas are not 
sort of set in stone that there were women who were doing these other who were finding workarounds these established ideas and now that we have different established well similar established ideas but in a different format there will still be another way to live and thrive as a woman yeah it's one of the interesting things is like i've often i look back every once in a while and try to find records as to the difference between um like sort of any statistical differences between women who lead in combat and men who lead in combat and you can't find any records because no one ever kept them Uh, of course yeah and it's only until recently that we have women who are combat leaders and the general emotion i've seen is that and forgive me for being a little bit crude here, but most women war leaders are less likely to get their men killed because they want to prove how big their dicks are. Mm. And then, the, and that's and that's a very dismissive and reductive way to look at it. But I, I mean that as specific, like because women are not as bound by the patriarchy and and these patriarchal assumptions of power and glory and status, they're more able to look at something rationally and unemotionally. It's like the people who talk, okay, well, women are very emotional. Like, have you seen a guy whose favorite sports, you know, whose favorite team is losing and tell me they're not emotional? But can you like, see Donald Trump? Like, oh, God, like and, any, any, <laughs> any, any dude who is like panicking because you asked him to wear a mask so that people don't yeah. die. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and people talk about, oh, testosterone gives you strength and it gives you aggression. I'm like, okay, yeah, you, you're right. But aggression is also a learned trait. Okay, aggression does come from hormones, but aggression is also a learned trait to be aggressive. You can learn to be aggressive. You can teach yourself to be aggressive. And my aggression, as somebody who does not have the same base testosterone, is better than hormonal aggression because my aggression is not mindless. Yeah. When I move forward in combat, and I, again, in my gym, I was always renowned as the person who would move into bigger guys because my skill was not to snipe at somebody from a distance. It was to get in and hit hard in specific places. My aggression is chosen. My aggression is calm. My aggression is... Aggression does not mean raving madness or anger. Aggression is simply, I am moving into a situation where a bad thing can happen because I am in control of that situation. So I, my aggression as a woman fighter as as somebody who is capable of going, okay, I'm not just angry that you made me look bad because now my manhood is in danger is superior mm-hmm. because it is not bound by my emotional state. I absolutely agree. While mm-hmm. we're talking about women warriors, I do think that there needs to be more of perhaps an intersectional analysis in the terms of yes. inclusion and representation. So not just cis, white, able-bodied women, but fighters yes. or of, you know, diverse ages, races, abilities, religion, sexual and gender identities, which I don't think like, of course, it's I mean, there are now more women fighters being represented in media, like more than there used to be still not, you know, enough. But yeah. I think with these other intersectional identities, there's so much fewer representations of that. And there is a lot of issues with the representation of race and and warrior and particular warrior women. There are a lot of issues there that need to be dealt with in an intersectional manner. And um, aggression and warrior women and sexuality, like one of the reasons why I maintain um, some of the secondary characteristics of overt femininity, like long hair, is that when I do have when I did have short hair or when is that I was assumed to be of a certain sexuality, mm-hmm. which is fabulous. Like that all sexualities are wonderful that as long as consent is involved, like great, but I'm not. 
Mm-hmm. And and that is something that's very difficult. It's one of the reasons why I don't date is because I tend to attract either people who want to dominate me or want to be dominated, and I'm not interested in either one of those. I'm like I'm not interested in beating you up. I'm not interested in seeing if you can beat me up. I'm interested in us sparring together and then going hanging out and watching a movie. Like my gender and my sexuality, and my being a warrior are all entwined, but they're not dependent on each other. If that makes any sense. But yeah, there's this, it, like there's huge issues with race around this because of the way that black women and black women warriors are often very portrayed which is one of the reasons why i loved black panther because Mm -hmm. it completely subverted that like often people who are not white are portrayed as either being sort of like sneaky and underhanded or you get like the very flowery beautiful choreography of the of the asian martial arts but it's like seen as being this sort of like very almost cold and clinical, you know, even though it's beautiful. And there's a, the the specific kind of fighter fighting woman there who's, you know, sort of very sad and destined to die. Basically exoticized and like. Yeah, exo- yeah the, the very orient- orientalist uh, colonial bullshit that you got. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, this. And then, then uh, women of darker skin colors, like, you know, Latinx women, Latino women and, um, you know, black women and East Asian women uh, were often seen as being brutish and, you know, like, oh, they're the hulking brutes. And I'm like, with this issue, you get so many intersexual problems. You get the intersexual sexuality and gender and race and class and culture that it's this huge stew. And I have to, like, as someone who's a writer who writes about warrior women, have to pick out the things that I feel that I have not simply the ability, but the right to talk about. Mm. And I want to see more of people who are not using my voice to write about this Mm. like because there's certain things where i don't have the right to talk about race in this relationship except in very basic i want more people talking about it because you know i'm middle class white woman it's not my place you know so we need more voices and more diverse voices and race is a huge problem in this area and it's something because like the 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 vast majority of the women you see are the thin middle class white women (laughs) Well, it's one of my problems with the way that we don't value physical strength in women is that we specifically don't value it in in our actors. And so that all of like 99% of all the women you see on the screen as warriors, quote unquote, are 100 pound thin models. Yeah, it's not realistic. I'm sorry. It just isn't. No. And so one of the episodes, the Breaking the Glass Slipper fight scenes with women warriors one, the guest Juliet McKenna was talking about like how in SFF, the availability of materials that are around the fighters influence the fighting style. So based on which country or culture that you're in, such as steel for armor. And but then that got me thinking in terms of intersectionality, how materials that exist, not just in like, historical whatever medieval stories but also in fantasies and science fiction like how science or uh, magic can be used to allow women of different abilities to fight so you know looking at accessibility needs and using that so in the dragon prince the fighter the commander amaya she's deaf so she uses sign language asl yes to you know communicate but she's the a fantastic fighter and in Avatar, the last airbender, Toph, she's blind, but she's a she's a fantastic, she's the best earthbender there is in that kingdom. So using, I think, like, especially in stories where you are able to control these things and write these things, or even, you know, like grandmothers 
or women who are menstruating or women who have a baby and you know have to figure out fighting with a baby on their back like just in one terms of, of the skills and weapons clothes yeah. whatever you need one of the one of the reasons why i train in in the in the filipino based martial art that i train in is that it's considered one of the greatest warriors in this art in my lineage was a 90 year old woman Guys that I know who are literally have murdered people with their bare hands in fair, like, you know, like they were being attacked by someone with lethal intent, described fighting this woman as fighting smoke. She wasn't faster or stronger than he was. She was just never there when he hit her. (laughs) She knew what he was going to do before he did it. So that's malice and intelligence. That's experience coupled with skill. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, she was a nine-year-old woman. She was barely mobile in many ways, but she was never there when he hit her because she just knew how to move. See, you don't imagine a nine-year-old woman when you say a warrior, right? Yeah. But like these people exist in real life and they definitely should exist in media, in our fantasy. I deliberately crippled the lead character of my novel for the second novel. I deliberately took away her ability to use one of her arms. Because I wanted to show how she would adapt in a world where she is an extreme. She's a part. Essentially, does parkour as part of her as part of her combat. And if she no longer has use of one arm, how crippled is she? In the sense that, like, what has to change? What can she do? What can't she do? And also, it, it's a uh, uh, society that uses sign language as a primary communication because anyone below noble status has to cover their face. Hmm. So to emphasize words, you can't use facial expressions. You have to use hands. Oh, that's really interesting. And also how then if she's acquired this disability, how then that affects her fighting as well? Because if yeah. you're used to one and have to then get used to another, that's also and, really interesting. And the need, the need to conceal it because so, she can't appear weak. Yeah. You know, and, and, and like a whole bunch of other things. Like I am more interested in the limitations and how to work around them than I am. This one of the reasons why I find like the the deity level characters in a lot of books and and media to be boring. Because if you have that power, why isn't the end of every fight just and then I punched him into the moan? <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't care. I don't care. You're boring. Like you you have no limitations on you. Who cares? Even if like it's like in the end, it's like oh this guy is gonna commit genocide. Oh I ha- I have to talk to him first. He's going to commit genocide. Kill him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So this is an, one of the many reasons I love Squirrel Girl. Because yes. can, canonically, she's supposed to be an amazing fighter. Like, I think she could punch people to the moon if, if I'm not wrong. But she, I mean, she's just yeah. really strong. But because of the kind of person that she is and her character, she really wants to befriend people and always yes. gives people the benefit of doubt and tries to get them to change their mind. And if they don't, then she goes and like punches them to the moon i guess or whatever and, the equivalent and that's and that's a great that's a great how should i put it like that's a great character like that's just a person that's a well round like that's just a character that's a human that happens to be a woman that happens to be a fighter you yeah. know it's like you can't just give people one trait you have to give them more traits right absolutely yeah and she's also sort of living up to your trainer's thing of like in a way where she doesn't run away but she does the verbal equivalent like you know she yeah fight she tries to do another thing and then if she's left with no other options 
she fights. But, yeah, yeah, it's it's like one of the characters that I've always loved for many, many years has been Steve Rogers, Captain America. And uh-huh. one of the reasons why I love him is that the very first comic I ever read with him in it was an Avengers comic where they're fighting essentially like a, a goddess. And he ends the fight by realizing that she's in mourning for her dead husband. And all he does is walk up to her. He offers her no violence and says, I'm so sorry for your loss. Yeah. And he essentially he ends the fight simply by expressing love and compassion for a being in pain. And I'm like, that's a hero. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Like a lot of the characters I'm going to name um, that I could name as being characters that I love are, are in like visual media, like, you know, like Buffy, like most of the MCU women and stuff like that. But it's like, there's a lot of science fiction and fantasy out there that deals with these subjects very well. So I would just simply suggest that to, to read very widely. But um, just in a comment about like, things that matter and, and how important representation is, is like, you know, the movie Logan, the last Wolverine movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So X-23, Laura Kinney, that character, I scared the people that I was in the theater with when I saw that movie. Cause at the final fight, when she charges into battle to fight next to her father, I was like doubled over weeping. And people were asking me why afterwards, why was I crying so hard? I said, cause if I'd seen that movie when I was 12, literally it would have changed my life. Because that was the first time I'd ever seen a female character who was not a a young girl who was not sweet, who was not nice, who was a vicious, brutal warrior, but who was not immoral or feral or, you know, like an animalistic character other than in her ability to fight, who actually had purpose and meaning. And I'm like, if I had seen that at 12, I would be a different human being. And that's why representation matters is because I want every single person to look out at this world that we see and look at fiction and see themselves in some way and i write and i create and i support creators who speak in diverse voices because i want to be able to see the woman warrior that i want to be that i never saw as a child that that's amazing that totally sums up why yeah why representation and diverse representation is so important and i'm glad you're creating your own pockets of diversity in your own stories i'm so happy about that thank you so much for coming onto this podcast and chatting with me about your experiences and i learned so much i always say this to participants and it's always true it's like it's become my stock line but i appreciate it very much and thank you so much lisa thank you for having me i'm incredibly honored and uh it's a great podcast i've listened to all your back issues and uh, they're wonderful so please uh if you need anything else from me i'm always available to you thank you You've been listening to our episode on representations of women fighters in media and history. I'm currently reading two brilliantly fun anthologies which feature female warriors in mainstream comics. Marvel, Powers of a Girl and DC, Women of Action. Who are some of your favorite women and non-binary fighters in media? As always, I'm always looking to expand my list. Thanks so much, Lisa, for such a fun and illuminating conversation. And thank you, Jack, for fighting the editing monster so I don't have to. You can now listen to Marginally Fanish on Spotify, Apple, Google or SoundCloud. I'd love to hear from you and talk to you. So any feedback, comments or critiques are very welcome. Get in touch with me on social media, leave a comment on my blog or email me at edps at leads.ac.uk. If you'd like to follow the podcast or the PhD project, visit my website marginallyfanish.org where you'll find both the podcast episodes 
and the blog. You can also receive updates on Facebook or Instagram at Marginally Fanish or on Twitter where I'm Marginally Fanish. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with anyone you think will enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. Tune in again next time for all things Spanish and intersectional.